You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. Gabriella Cretha Johnson is someone I could quite easily say is amongst the most authentic people I've ever encountered. Not because she tries to be or desperately wants to be, but because being her most real self has been a form of armor while coming up in a space she didn't always see herself in. Despite the fact that the technological waves were a bit choppy for us while recording this episode, the diamonds she drops throughout it make it a worthwhile sail across the oceans of aspiration, self-discovery, success, and an ever-changing relationship with dreams that come true. She's Vogue's global contributing fashion editor at large and one of the most prominent names amongst the New Guard generation. But more than anything, she is who she is. Hi, this is Gabriella Kripa Johnson, and we are talking about what is contemporary now. Gabriella Karifa Johnson, you know at this point that we always start things off with a little bit of a biographical nod, but with you I wanted to start things differently and kick off with the big bucket question of what you think is contemporary now. What is contemporary now is the pursuit of truth. I think that honesty is the most important thesis to any contemporary project. And I think that that manifests in good ways and in bad ways. I think even if we're talking about the world that we're living in right now, we are laying bare who we really are in sometimes all of its ugliness and then sometimes all of its beauty. And I think reckoning with the truth of who we are, the art that we make, the messages we want to be putting out into the world is probably the most contemporary pursuit one could embark upon. I will never tire of your ability to answer questions in this kind of off the cuff type of a way, yet somehow you're always perfectly articulate. So let's do the thing and go back to the beginning of your time in fashion. I believe it started at Vogue when you were assisting Tony Goodman. My kickoff was at Vogue when I actually first job was working for Hamish Bold and the features department. Ah, yes, that's right. How did you end up starting with Hamish? I went to Barnard College and I was an okay student, but I really spent all of my time interning. I spent some time in the Vogue closet and I really wanted to be a fashion girl desperately. But at the time, people were assisting these top editors for like seven or eight years. Now, like assisting is like two or three years and you can go off and be a stylist. But there weren't a ton of vacancies. And I remember just thinking, I just have to get in the door. If I get in the door, I can find my way to what I want to do. And I was recommended for this position by a Barnard alumna. And I started without having much of a grasp on what Hamish did at the magazine. I knew he was this brilliant mind and like endless resource of fashion history and art history. And I'd studied art history at the time. So I was a little bit equipped to like dive in and be his research partner, but I hadn't really thought about features as a career for me. So while I was there, I just soaked it all up. It was like a lot of transcribing and a lot of research, as I said, and learning everything about the most fantastic gardens and houses across the planet. And as soon as there was a position in the fashion office for Tawny Goodman, I went against my better judgment, feeling kind of like I wasn't quite right for the role. I wasn't the fashion girl, the thin, the white, the well-connected. And I went for it and we just ended up clicking in that interview and we were the odd couple and inseparable ever since. Did you feel as though there were particular takeaways from the experience with Hamish before you moved into the other lane? Or was it just always known that you were going to switch over anyway and it was more so a matter of doing the due diligence process? I think I really struggled for a long time with leather styling and working in fashion in a more 
material and art-based capacity was like a noble pursuit. I think I like grew up with a family of doctors and lawyers and academics, and it was really hard for me to think that my passion for fashion was serious. Like it felt like frivolity and not very grown up. And even though I worshipped these artists and this artwork and it was all that I wanted to do, it never felt like a career. And it felt like a luxury that perhaps I wasn't in the position to be able to take advantage of. I needed to like make money to pay college loans. You know, I wasn't out shopping and I didn't look like those girls and it just felt scary. And so when I realized that I could get my fashion fixed and digest all of this brilliant knowledge about this industry and look at beautiful images and dive into archives and source one of the kind couture for Hamish's personal collection, that felt like a way of rushing up against fashion while still having this quite academic, analytical portion of my profession. It felt almost safer and like less of a risk. And so as soon as the position opened up with Connie, I think I'd become acquainted enough with the history of fashion and what these images meant and how weighty, in fact, fashion was in the way that it interacts with society and culture at large, that it became clear to me that being an editor, it wasn't some dancing about clothing. It was being a tasting and it was being real part of culture. Your school in this business has been Vogue. You've worked for independent titles and a number of different brand partners and run the gamut. But as far as your upbringing, you've very much grown up at Vogue. I was curious as to whether or not you felt like there were particular ways that experience shaped your approach, your views, your entire relationship to the industry. I think Vogue for me has always been somewhere that I've wanted to be and I've wanted to grow within because I grew up within a West African and West Indian American hybrid household where focus and discipline and getting to the highest peak of the mountaintop, that was always the end goal. And folk to me does and always has represented the pinnacle of fashion. And so working within and growing within the pantheon of Vogue, it really allowed me to hone in on this classical definition of what fashion magazine should be. It armored me with a real process and dedication to classic image making. And I think the ways in which it has shaped my relationship with the fashion industry in general is that I've realized that really rather than building upon that foundation that I learned at Vogue, I've found a way to dismantle a lot of that in my own work. It's kind of like how the measure of a chef is how you can scramble an egg. <laughs> it's like I had to learn all of these basics in order to kind of fuck it up a little bit. So I really, really appreciate that foundational training at the highest level of fashion image making because it gave me an arsenal of tools to be able to build my own language, which I think is like quite different from what I learned there. And I think I'm bringing that into the work that I'm creating there. So that feels quite evolutionary and really right to stay there. Yeah, it's quite the trajectory. Going back to what you were just talking about as far as being able to actually make changes and bring your own point of view rather than be schooled by Vogue and perpetuate its own ideas that you were raised on. How has that experience been? Do you feel like the willingness to be agile and evolve creatively as a title is there? Or do you feel as though you've had to push against some walls? Or I suppose both could be true. I think for a very long time, I have thought of myself 
as a fire starter and like a problem child. And I realized <laughs> at Vogue that that friction actually creates some of the best work. I think there's a real willingness for Vogue to evolve and to become a magazine of 2022 and beyond. And I think we're seeing that. You see it in the casting, you see it in the talent that's shooting for the magazine, that's doing the makeup, that's doing the hair and the set design, but it isn't an easy process. And there is tension, but you know, I'm the kind of person who goes into a creative meeting and has my idea and I went to the collection and I downloaded all of it, as I said, very academic and studious in my approach. And I've presented all of it and this is the reason I always do the story. And when the answer isn't a yes, I'm also equipped with the rebuttal. So more often than not, it's results in work that I'm really proud of that I think is a departure from most people consider to be the traditional Vogue story. And it is the step in the right direction. But yeah, there are some ideas that are left on the table, but there are some that are like maybe just not right for the magazine. I remember during a conversation with Grace Coddington, actually, we had discussed a similar idea about the benefits of having those restrictions to push against. And without them, you're actually less creative. And obviously it doesn't make it easy, but that friction can actually be supportive or even contribute to the genesis of what your ideas are because you have parameters to work with, right? Yeah. And it forces you to be clear about your vision and you to believe in it to your core because the stakes are you know, I was right. We shouldn't have done this story and this is why. And now we're not taking these risks anymore <laughs> or it worked out and we should continue in this trajectory. So I really appreciate that friction and that conversation. I also think that like art in general is conversation. And I think subjectivity is really important to protect in the creative field because as soon as it becomes this is Vogue, this isn't Vogue, instead of what can't Vogue be, we're in trouble. Another thing I really wanted to talk to you about was the hustle. You don't stop. Your bandwidth is insane and your social life is insane. <laughs> it's the whole thing as a collective is the epitome of hustle. And obviously there's been a great deal of conversation around the idea of hustle culture in the media today. And I think all of our feelings or views on that idea or the way we historically have always worked, especially in a city like New York and in an industry like fashion, it's all been changed. And so I was curious what your thoughts are about hustle culture. I have a very complicated relationship with work ethic because I think I was born with this incredible drive and I always wanted to be the best. And that is like such a dangerous desire. And I think it's driven me to really measure my success and my value professionally in how much I'm doing. And I think the only way to maintain this volume of work that I think eventually amounts to your longevity or your positioning in this industry is to always be doing it. As poisonous as the spot is, I'm plagued with this idea of like, if you're not doing it, someone else is, you know? And if you're not going to get to that job, they're going to find someone else. And this is the way that the tides shift. And I think there's like a lot of fear in the idea of not always being on your grind and not always being on your hustle. And for a really long time, I thought that that was a virtue. I thought that being on my grind out here 24-7, wearing myself out, proved that I could hack it, like I could take it. You know, like fashion wasn't supposed to be easy. It wasn't as glamorous as everybody said it was. It's hard work. And if you can't, you can't hang. <laughs> You're kind of thrown to the sides. When I 
recently, very recently, developed a much healthier relationship to output and to hustle. And I just realized that there's real power in selectivity, really choosing the projects that you want to be dedicating all of your time and energy on. And that's almost powerful than volume. And it's a lesson that I'm still learning, but it feels healthier. So is that to say that you do think balance is possible to achieve while at working at the level that you do in this business? I think it's possible mm-hmm. in the fastest sense of the word possible, <laughs> but I have not found a definitive route. I think there's a level of success that one can reach that almost like solidifies your place in this industry. I think there are numerous examples of that in the fashion editorial world, you know, Grace Coddington is in her 80s and still working. Patty Wilson is still working and creating amazing images that girlies are eating up on the mood board. And I think in order to get to that level, it does require a period of severe grind. I just think maybe in this day and age, maybe that period of grinding is slightly shorter or we prioritize balance over output. Yeah, that's why it's so fascinating to me. I think in the larger culture scape, we've read a great deal about things like the great resignation and people leaving companies that they don't feel are affording them the luxury of a hybrid schedule or whatever their metrics might be. But I think it's curious to explore whether or not that's something that can be transferable to a business like this, where, like you said, If you say no, someone else might say yes, but there is power in saying no. So where's that sweet spot of cultivating your career in a way that allows you to not only sustain, but continue to grow your market share, your voice of influence, and really express your ideas effectively without losing that space in the moments that you do want to have a healthy balance? Because otherwise, there are certain people in this industry who have an incredible body of work, but a day does arrive and you can't help but wonder what it is they're going home to. You know, so at what point are you mitigating that result along the way without feeling as though you'll fall prey to the system that will just close over you like a river on a rock? I think about that all the time because, as you said, it is like so clear that there were idols with great bodies of work that I grew up being in awe of who reached a point in their careers where they were kind of thrown away by fashion. I thought about this a lot with the passing of Andre Leontali. I remember how massive and monumental he was to me and how unshakable his position in this industry was and how the integrity of and the authority of his voice in fashion felt like something that could never be ignored, shaken, forgotten about. And towards the end of his life, he wrote a beautiful memoir that spoke about all the ups and downs and the trials and tribulations and this grinding culture and finally making it to the mountaintop. But a lot of people forgot about him until they showed up at his memorial. And I do have a real fear of grinding, 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 going, 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 reaching this mythical pinnacle and then not being sure of what that ultimately amounts to. Another gift that I find running abundantly through your veins that I so appreciate is your absolute inability to be anything other than yourself. And obviously, authenticity is a buzzword for good reason. Even marketing executives at this point have realized it's the secret sauce for influence and efficacy and what it is they do. But it's not always something that you can craft or cultivate. And I think a lot of people in the world aren't necessarily less authentic as a result of their not wanting to be. I don't know if it's a matter of self-awareness or just knowing ourselves or if we can't escape 
the constant barrage of information that we're comparing ourselves to that's informing our choices along the way. But I wanted to hear from you if that resonates with you, if you're aware of that authenticity or if it's just something that the rest of us see in spades. I think when you say it, it sounds so noble and I'm so chuffed and I got kind of blessy thinking that people admire the fact that I show up as who I am regardless of the spaces that I'm occupying. But when I think about who I am, I've realized that being my authentic self is actually a survival mechanism. So I grew up in predominantly white, middle-class, upper-middle-class neighborhoods. I went to the boarding school. I was an intern at Vogue and at L. And it was so clear to me that I could never camouflage or mask or try to adapt to those environments because it was such a stark difference of who I was from who everyone else around me was that the only thing that I could do successfully was just lean into it and be exactly who I am. And it's so liberating and I'm so happy. That's the way my adolescent brain adapted to the stress of being othered in most environments that I was in. But it does make me think I'm not sure there was ever another option. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it was like, I am who I am and I need to make people see value in that. And if they don't, it's not for me. There's just no way I'm going to be able to change. It was not so much a choice as it was a necessity. But I do think, as you said, like this idea of authenticity is so commodified now. And I think when you think about it in terms of media and culture and social media, even the cover stars that we're putting on magazines now, it's like this idea of relatability has almost become synthetic. It's like a 360 full circle kind of thing. It's so real that it's fake. <laughs> and sometimes I find myself performing myself. And I have to catch it. So as much as I am a Looney Tune and I go crazy and I am loud and rambunctious and you will always know what's on my mind, that is very true to who I am. Sometimes I'm like, wait, is this me being me or is this me playing Gabrielle Grieco Johnson? <laughs> and those are the moments that are like very stressful. What's interesting about that idea is there are people who have written entire books, some of which were largely inspired by Beyonce, Sasha Fierce, around the value of having an alter ego that you can call upon or sort of play upon as a means of separating, I suppose, yourself from the performative aspect of our lives, not necessarily in a way that's not authentic, but it gives you the ability to contain that side without feeling as vulnerable as maybe you would if you were just bringing your at-home self or whatever comparison you would draw. So in a way, I suppose you're just organically tapping into another superpower. I guess so. As you were saying that, talking about Sasha Pierce, I was thinking, like, am I an entertainer? Is that what it is? Like, do, <laughs> do I like, feel like I have to turn it on sometimes? And the way to do that is give them a little bit of a show. But I think ultimately, that's who I am. Yeah. There have been conversations around the idea of whether or not that editor, that sort of forward-facing, media-captured, public forum-known editor is something of the past? Is it something that will be left behind at a certain point? And then when I look at someone such as yourself playing the role that you do in this business, I definitely don't think so. I think that the way you show up beyond the pages of the work you do, you're very present. And correct me if I'm wrong, but don't you also orchestrate brand deals for yourself on social? I mean, are you not sort of a hybrid already, a modern-day editor, as it were? Yeah, I totally subscribe to the cult personality of the editor. I grew up with the tumblers of having Manuel Alt all chic in her blazer and her Manolos and Anna walking through the Tuileries to the show. 
I love the idea that these women were heralding such huge heritage brands, but so much of that, what they put into the magazine was themselves. And so I pretty early on in the social media craze realized that the way that we editors and fashion people were making fun of influencers, as it were, was totally the wrong approach. We've been doing this our entire lives. The editor is the original influencer. That is innate to the role. So I tried to really bolster a community, or at least I tried to bolster a language that I could then broadcast to a community of who I was, because I think that will always be the biggest part of any work that I do at any magazine that I work for with any brand that I consult for. I'm always going to bring myself to the table. So why not show who I am in that way? And yeah, I do do brand deals and I'm working on something huge that's going to bring my sense of fashion, my vision for this industry to like very large swath people at a really approachable, affordable price point. And I think in that way, I've always wanted to speak to the most people possible and I've always wanted to do it authentically and ask myself. So yeah, I'm on that influencer tip. Speaking of participating in media, you were recently in the documentary on Virgil Abloh that was released by Vogue. And there was this incredibly moving scene where you were speaking about the friendship that the pair of you shared and his brilliance and his talent. And you spoke about the safety that he represented for you. And I wanted to hear more about what that meant. Yeah, I think the... He was someone to everyone, first of all, which I think is like a trait that is incredibly unique in someone who's so massive in their influence and in their talent to be that generous as they are. It automatically felt like there was a safety net if you ever felt. And he was such a proponent of youth and believing the value of the ideas of the person sitting at the head of the boardroom table. And I think whenever I did anything scary or I felt out of place in this industry, I always knew in the back of my head that at the very top of this industry, there was somebody who had my back and who pushed me to be that version myself as an editor and a creator and who was constantly like validating work. And it's so weird because it sounds almost selfish and it also sounds like a little bit, I'm not even sure I can articulate exactly what, I, what it is, but he was not bearing with compliments. Do you know what I mean? He was like <laughs> the busiest person in the world who always was creating work that everybody on the face of the planet was obsessed with. And he still found the time to be like, that editorial was amazing. You got there. Like, you're great. Like, you're going to be the editor in Tupac Magazine one day. And those kinds of sentiments from him meant something. It wasn't some like unattainable, mythical idea of success that wasn't tangible and you really couldn't touch like this was a living breathing person you would talk to and seek counsel from and he was there and he your back i think the same way he uh, held that space and represented those things to you and so many others you also represent a sort of lighthouse figure to people who are in this business aspiring to be in this business fans of this business I love that. I adore you. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for all of the shares and the time you've taken today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. Special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, Joseph Topmiller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Saw for the original theme music, and Aaron Marr for visual design. 
Subscribe now for a new episode each week and for additional content, find us on social or at whatscontemporary.com.